0: From Zamo Digital, welcome to the SaaS Marketing Superstars podcast with your host,
1: Aaron Zikowski. This is the show where we uncover proven growth strategies from CMOs and marketing leaders behind some of the fastest growing SaaS companies. Hey, superstars. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Aaron and Today, I'm chatting with Ashley Faust. Ashley is a content strategy lead at Atlassian, a software development company that makes popular tools like Confluence, Jira, and Trello. As she describes herself on LinkedIn, she's a marketer, writer, and speaker by day, and a singer, actor, and fitness fiend by night. Hey, Ashley, how's it going today?
0: Hey, it's good. Happy, what are we at? Thursday.
1: Happy Thursday. That's right. So happy to uh, get you on the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good Um, to be here.
1: Yeah. So just to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role and responsibilities at Alaskan.
0: Sure. So I handle all things content strategy and distribution for agile and DevOps related topics at Atlassian. So um, I do work on a couple of different products and uh, kind of thought leadership content. So um, Jira is in my portfolio, Bitbucket is my portfolio, and then our Open DevOps solution is also in my portfolio. So it includes a variety of social handles, newsletters, community spaces, uh, long form and short form content outlets across uh, written and visual deliverables. So big, big remit across yeah. all the things content.
1: So, I mean, you've got a lot of brands over there, um, a lot of companies, I mean, how big is the team? I mean, how big is your marketing team and how big is your is your content team over there?
0: So that's a good question. We've actually been growing a ton. I know that the whole marketing org is a couple hundred people, but that includes, you know, performance, which is the paid side of things. Mm-hmm. One interesting thing about our structure that I think is great is that our marketing analytics folks also sit on our team. So instead of sitting in a separate like analytics organization or engineering organization. They actually sit directly in the marketing organization. So that gives them a ton of context. So when you go to them with a question or you want to build a new dashboard, or you're trying to set goals, they have that ability to say, Hey, is this the right thing? Here's how it connects to something else that we've already done, uh, which is super helpful. So, um, and then content wise uh, it, it varies by team. So in some cases we have product marketing folks who are owning a variety of different handles and content outlets. Sure. My team in particular, because um, Jira is our kind of largest and oldest product has a separate content team that I run. So it's um, it varies by organization. So I've got a couple of people that, uh, you know, report to me and, and are full time. And then we also have a number of freelance and contract writers um, that are subject, deep subject matters, deep subject matter experts in more of the technical elements of Agile and DevOps.
1: Great. Uh, And it sounds like there's a lot of different types of content flowing. It sounds like a lot of responsibilities. You know, we've got multiple brands, we've got multiple platforms, and multiple types of content, it sounds like we're just saying over there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's fun. I get to work with a bunch of smart people, and I am by no means the expert in all the things. So I'm really fortunate to have such smart people on my team that are experts that I can go to and say, "Hey, mm-hmm. here's kind of how I'm connecting the dots, but help me go really deep in each specific area." Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really nice kind of complementary relationship between my generalist skill set and the specialist skill sets that I work with.
1: Yes. Nice. So it sounds like you're having fun over there, and I could tell by the way you talk about it. Um, so I noticed when I was kind of researching your background and some of your social posts and stuff, you you talk a lot about the idea of of content playgrounds and some of your social posts. So, so, so what does that mean? And can you explain that to us a little bit?
0: Yeah. So I kind of came up with the content playground, um, about two years ago or so, um, as I was thinking about the linear funnel. And so I was starting to have this mindset shift where everybody kept mapping content to the linear funnel. So at its core, it's three phases, awareness, consideration, and purchase, and everybody kind of whips out their editorial calendar and says, "Okay, I'm going to do three pieces in awareness, two pieces in editorial, one piece in, in kind of purchase consideration phase." Yep. Um, and that's six pieces of content once per month, six months of content strategy. And I'm like, nobody wakes up and says, "Today I will read the awareness content." Like nobody buys that way, nobody researches that way, nobody learns that way. Right. And so I really decided I was like, you know, what we really need is a, a new model that focuses on educating, empowering, and delighting the person. And that is so smart that no matter which way they go, up, down, sideways, internet, as they please, um, that this journey is so smart that we meet them wherever we are. And so if we really think about a playground, it can entertain children for hours. Um, I don't have kids, but I've got nieces and nephews. And if you find something that entertains them for hours, like you have one as a parent or an aunt or an uncle, right? So these playground designers are super smart that they can entertain children of all ages for hours and hours. And so how do we adopt that mindset as a marketer? And so I think the biggest thing for me is making sure that there are no dead ends to content. So frequently there's this assumption that at the end of the journey, someone makes a purchase and they have now completed the journey. Yep. But especially in SaaS, where you have to win and rewin the hearts and minds of your audience over and over again, like churn is a thing that exists retention is the thing that you have to think about, that purchase is not the end of the journey or downloading a template or running a retro, whatever the thing is, even if it's another free piece of content, that's not the end of the journey. And so how do you think about making these journeys in a way where you're not stuck trying to create thousands of pieces of content, but you're connecting them in a way that you never end up with a dead end and it's delightful and empowering. And yes, Somewhere along the way, a couple of those those uh, stops along the journey lead to purchases.
1: Okay. So let me, let me. you just said a lot and, and I want to try I understand and make sure the audience understands it. So it sounds like the first thing to pull out of that is that don't think about the, the, the journey as a linear line, that no one's kind right. of moving that. It. It's kind of a scribble where people are going all over the place and just make sure wherever they go, is like a choose your own adventure book kind of, you know, we had Correct. those very popular when I was a kid. You know, wherever you go, you're going to find the good information that will hopefully help you. Um, so I, I love that. It just seems like it's don't almost don't even think about it at, at different levels. Um, I mean, I don't know if that that's your approach, but that sounds like what you're saying. Um, and just make sure you've got, you know, educational and delightful content, no matter which direction people go. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And then, then sure. the other thing you, you said that, that, that struck me as curious is that is the content's role in reducing churn and kind of helping people to stay even after they made that purchase decision. Cause I would generally think about content as, you know, we've got the different levels of of the funnel before the purchase happens. And obviously, people don't do that in a a linear way. And and that totally makes sense. But I would have thought that, you know, reducing churn and, you know, keeping people happy would be the job of the product that once they've bought, you know, they're going to keep using the product, the product, product, you know, solves their problems and does what it's supposed to do in, in a really good way. And they haven't found a better alternative. But it sounds like there's a little bit more to that.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, one thing I was, um, talking with someone who is very focused on omni-channel journeys. And one of the things we were talking about is that we have all these different words for who the person is that are mapped to our internal team. And it's this very, uh, inside out mindset where like, if you're a marketer, you talk about the audience. If you're a sales rep, you talk about prospects. If you're a, um, you know, product owner, UX designer, you talk about users. If you're um, customer success, you may talk about, you know, stakeholders or product owners on the customer side, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have all of these different words for the people based on what we as an organization are, are doing at any one time means that we're not aligned on who they are, how to help them, and how to make sure that they have a good experience, um, both from a content perspective and from a product perspective. So that's the first thing is, is making this mindset shift that there's, yes, you need to have people who are responsible for each phase of the journey, but this idea that someone has changed from audience to prospect, to buyer, to user, to you know, contract negotiator, it's like, they're still the same person. They still right. have problems. They're still looking for solutions they still are slammed. Their calendars are crazy. They still have hobbies outside of work that they want to get home to. And so just because we pass off the responsibility of the execution internally does not mean we should pass off the mindset. And so I think ways that that comes to life, for example, um, at Atlassian, our product documentation is available publicly. So you can go look at all of the documentation for the products. And what that means is that because it's so detailed and quite deep and really high quality content, it shows up in our SEO search results. Uh-huh. And so when somebody starts to say like, how to make a, you know, Epic in Jira, they might actually land in our documentation and it's very product focused and walks you through step-by-step. And so what we start to see is that that would traditionally be considered kind of a bottom of funnel or post-purchase retention type of content. That right. all oh, the product team or the content design team or the support team, they own that. Uh-huh. Okay, well if people are finding it just as they're starting their top of funnel journey uh-huh. and they're starting to understand how hard is it going to be to drive adoption in this product? How hard is it going to be to onboard? How hard is it going to be to migrate people? If they jump in and your support documentation is terrible or confusing or there's so much of it that it's like, "Oh my gosh, this product like this is so confusing." You've now got a marketing problem because I'm going to struggle to acquire you as a customer because I haven't promised you a good experience on the back end. Interesting. And then I would, and then I would say kind of the same thing that now you're on the back end. Um, again, once you get into uh, Jira, for example, one of the first questions it asks is, do you want to run Scrum or Kanban? Well, what if you don't know what those are? Well, it turns out we have an agile microsite that talks about the differences between Scrum and Kanban from a practices standpoint and a you know, mindset and culture standpoint so yes. that you can be informed when you get into the tool. And so it works both ways that kind of that bottom of funnel content becomes top of funnel. And then Mm -hmm. that top of funnel content becomes bottom of funnel.
1: Right. So I think it sounds like it's just like an extreme example of before we said, you know, it's not linear that people could even kind of, I guess there's almost like a a finish line once someone purchases, but like, there's like this whole, you know, underworld of kind of what happens on the other side of of that process, but does not but, but still people could read that content even before they made the, the purchase. But it definitely yeah. makes sense that that the documentation and help centers and things like that would be the post post purchase content, but that people might want it beforehand. Right. So right. it totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, changing mentalities a little bit. I guess you know I, I work in a, in a demand gen type of world, and I think most of the marketers that we're dealing with uh, or listening to the show tend to be in that space. So let's let's bring the conversation a little in that direction. Um, content in, in in the role of, of demand gen. Um, one of the questions or topics I think that comes up a lot is is, is thought leadership and, and the idea of of having um, individuals presenting content or having the company presenting the content. I mean, it could be almost the same content. Obviously, it's going to be in a slightly different voice depending on you know if, if if Ashley presents it on her LinkedIn page or if Jira uh, presents it on on their on their business page, right? How do you think about the the pros and cons of of content being published by by the we'll call it, you know, influencers, so to speak, in the the B2B space versus companies?
0: I think I've actually gone through a little bit of a mindset shift on this. I've always been very pro, uh, put a a human face as the byline. So, you know, Atlassian is not publishing content. That's like that's not what's happening. Someone, a human at Atlassian, mm-hmm. wrote the content and distributed the content and you know has the knowledge. Atlassian no. doesn't have the knowledge. The humans at Atlassian have the knowledge. Right. Um, so I've always been very pro, you know, put a human byline uh, or human face on the bylines or the voiceovers or whatever. Mm-hmm. I will say that I think there's an interplay between how the company or the brand enables people to talk about them. And so if you look at some of the posts um, like I I share Atlassian content all the time, but the way that I do that is more through my experience. So I'll share things like, Hey, our leader said this, and that really resonated with me. And PS, by the way, if this also resonates with you and you want to work with leadership like this, we're hiring check Uh the LinkedIn comments that resonates a lot more than Atlassian just posting Hello, check out all of our careers, right? So there's an element of it where, yes, Atlassian does need to participate in some of the more official things like great place to work surveys or um, being on a list of fastest growing companies or something like that. There's an element of that that's the brand level where companies need to do that. Uh But if you want to get marketers like me, the best way to do that is for a marketer like me to tell other marketers like me, hey, come here, I'm thriving. And Uh so... I think the, the, the thing that's interesting is um, if you look at like the Edelman Trust Report, it's institutional trust has been tanking for years and years, and it's yeah. at an all-time low. And so when you realize that people don't really trust the brand, like, yes, you do as a brand still have to put out content and still have to tell these stories, but empowering your employees, the one place where trust is doing well is that peer-peer. People want to hear from people like themselves. Sure. And so in theory, you hired all of these smart, capable people. You're giving them hard, interesting problems to solve, and they're succeeding at that. Let them tell that story and invite other people, both from a customer standpoint, an audience standpoint, a candidate standpoint, a partnership standpoint. Let them tell that story. And so put in place the guardrails and the guidelines so that they tell that story well. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, empower the employees to tell that story. So I think there's, there's a cohesive element of it where the brand's, can get behind the employees and kind of empower them. Um, Mm. But I used to be like, nah, let the employees go rogue. And now I'm like, actually, let's, how do we empower them to tell this story in a way that is authentic to them, but is cohesive so that when you land on someone's profile from Atlassian or you see the Atlassian story in the market, it's cohesive.
1: So do you work within the company to, I guess, proactively encourage Members of the team to go and talk on, on their LinkedIn or their blog posts or, or whatever their medium is about the company? Or do you just say, you know, well, if you're going to do it, here's kind of the guidelines we'd like you to follow. Because it would seem like there's, there's a pretty strong, I guess, strategy in place, especially for a company the size of yours, to say, like, hey, you know, if we can just ask, I don't know if you want everybody, I don't know if, if, you know, computer programmers are the right person to be talking about it, but they can be to their community, right? Um, to be actively going out and, and the reach would be tremendous for the company with as many employees as yours to say like, you know, go talk about this this week or, or this month and and you could reach so many people that way. Or do you just kind of say, you know, if you want to, here's how we'd like you to do it.
0: We have, uh, we're. I would say we're going through a little bit of a shift in that way, actually. Mm-hmm. So we have kind of traditionally, uh, again, I call it going rogue, but it's, it's not frowned upon. It's not like you get your hand slapped, but it's much more of, um, yeah yeah you can you can do that um, and I think the places where we have really honed in on that that story have been more around um, you know using employees as subject matter experts for bylines on blog posts or as um, using you know trying to build a bench of spokespeople for things like analyst relations and press. I think that we're just starting I think we've done a really great job in our community um, to really pull forward voices both from a customer standpoint and employee standpoint at all levels of the organization and across a variety of topic areas. But I think we're still in kind of the nascent stages of having a more cohesive, basically employee amplification or employee advocacy program. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple of power users um, and that's great. And every time we see it, we're like, man, that Aaron guy, he seems to do really well on LinkedIn. Like, okay, we're going to have Aaron go out and promote this event or this product launch. So we've we've started to do some of that to experiment with, hey, what would it look like if the product manager was the one who did this big announcement and everyone went and kind of swarmed and promoted their post Uh versus on the company page saying, hey, here's the big announcement. Everyone go swarm on that post. Uh We're starting to experiment with that. Um, It is true that from a reach standpoint, if you can have your employees out there telling that story and it's all you know, 5,000 of us or again- how big we are, I'm like, I would have to go back and look at the the shareholder report for the official numbers. But thousands of us going out and saying and sharing these messages definitely would have a much bigger impact than kind of just honing in on the one person. Um, So I I would say we're actually going through kind of an evolution on putting in place some more um, cohesive strategy from a kind of social media or influencer standpoint, even though we have always encouraged employees to tell their stories.
1: So. I understand, you know, obviously there's going to be some challenges encouraging people to go out and and post and share their stories. And, you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm kind of thinking LinkedIn. It just seems like it's probably the place where this stuff is happening, but maybe other mediums as well. Um, But but there's getting people to share the content themselves and write it in their words and all that, which is obviously more difficult. But you said something there about getting people in the company to swarm and support and share and like the posts that are already happening, whether from an individual, whether from the company. Is there a process in place that you guys have in order to to help make that happen? Because, you know, a number of episodes ago, I interviewed um, one of the marketing people at Gong and he was explaining to me that, you know, when they got started kind of launching the company that that was actually one of the best strategies they had. You know, their team was growing and they just had like everybody get on board every time content was being shared on on LinkedIn and they have great content over there that everyone would share it, everybody would like it. And just the the organic reach magnified and, and multiplied, you know, so far that it really helped grow the company in the early stages. Do you guys have anything similar going on?
0: Yes and no. So it's not um, operationalized in a sense of like, okay, this is the one Slack channel that we all go to where you put in your like, Mm -hmm. swarm all the posts, right? Um, We're doing it more on kind of a a team level at this point. So one thing that's interesting is there's been kind of a shift in the LinkedIn algorithm, basically, where um, it really likes reactions and it really likes comments and so if within the first one to three hours you can get a bunch of likes and a bunch of comments on a post it'll it will definitely skyrocket the reach which then has a nice uh you know effect where the more people see it the more people like it and the more people comment on it and so um the other thing to to my point earlier about for example the Edelman Trust Report people are a lot people feel a lot less uh voluntold to do that if it is their peer versus the company. So right. it always feels a little weird to be like yay company and if you do that too much it's like are you just a corporate shill? That's really awkward. Yeah. But yeah, Ashley. Yeah, if it's yay Ashley, right? I love congratulating my teammate and if people see it in the feed of me constantly saying congratulations Aaron or congratulations Brooke or congratulations John, right? Like man, that actually, she seems to be a really great teammate. She seems to really promote yeah. her colleagues. And so you feel that affinity of she knows people, the people she's talking to are great. They feel good that they're being recognized from the team and nobody feels like they're being sold to because I'm just congratulating my teammates. Yeah. Like they were, worked really hard on this launch. And so we've actually found that people, yes, there are times where they will rally around one corporate post or we'll do a big push to say, hey, this post is really important, please go share or like or comment. But we found that people are much less resistant if we say, help your teammate out and have them post it. And so yeah. we'll put in a little bit of effort to um, you know, make sure that the messages are getting out and put together some assets like a carousel or something with screenshots of this product launch, but having the product manager be the person to say, I'm super proud of this. It's been the last 12 months of my life to work on this. Um, That's a huge accomplishment. We also use this tactic when we were doing our big um, team conference. So it used to be called Summit. Now it's called Team. And I worked with one of my colleagues to have, he had a couple of people in his organization on the IT side that were speaking. And so instead of just saying, hey, can the corporate handle, put out, by the way, catch the IT sessions. He actually had those speakers go out and they did a whole round robin of on this day ashley's going to post on this day aaron's going to post and so in both cases we weren't cannibalizing each other Mm -hmm. and we had something going out on a regular basis and people were swarming Um, and they got tens of thousands of views and lots of engagement and click-through rate um and the session the sessions that they gave ended up being really highly rated Mm -hmm. because of that sense of networking that like man if aaron says this is good content I'm going to actually register versus, well, of course, Atlassian is going to say they have good yeah,
1: content. Like really we're
0: highly biased, right?
1: Nice. Yeah. I, you know, if I think about a company that, that I've seen do this well, we used to work with a company Lessonly. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but their team was always just posting their wins and congratulating each other on on each other's wins. And I always see their stuff, you know, just rising to the top. And and you see lots of people from outside the organization also just start to jump on the bagwagon and say, hey, that's really cool, congratulations. And and they really, they seem to be getting out of reach. And it's it's a brilliant strategy, and really so simple. Yeah. Yeah, And costs nothing.
0: Yeah, if you look at Sweetfish Media is actually doing a great job with this. And what I love about, well, there's the other thing I love about it, aside from the fact that it's going so well for them, Uh is that they're actively saying, this is what we're doing. And this is how we're doing it. We've someone who's a full-time owner to help enable this. We have a whole program. They're posting their analytics on it. They're posting their process. And so it's not just that sense of secretly, like, how are all these sweet fish media people showing up in my feed? Um, The other interesting thing is that every time I comment on someone's post, um, if we're not connected, they immediately reach out and connect with me. Uh-huh. So they're actively building those relationships and then they start coming to go on my posts or reacting to my post. And so in just, I would say the last like four or five months, I'm now can, I'm like in the sweet fish family because they have all made a point to connect to me. And I know they're doing that obviously more, more than just with me, uh-huh. but it's been huge and their reach has skyrocketed their affinity again. I am now on this podcast telling everyone like, go check out Sweetfish Media. They're doing a lot of great stuff. They have podcasts. Their people are super smart, right? Right. And so when you start to see that, I'm not a customer of theirs. I haven't worked with them from a customer standpoint, but what I can tell you is that what they're doing from a content and marketing standpoint is super smart. And so if you do need their product, which is they produce podcasts, uh, now you know that you can go check them out. You can connect with them and build that relationship. Uh And then, yeah, sure. At some point, if you want to buy they will be happy to sell you something amazing, right? right.
1: And, and you say and they've published and kind of exposed their, their strategy that what they're doing here, like they're not hiding it, they put in a blog post or something like that out there.
0: Yeah, so they've done it in a couple of ways. I see it um, on LinkedIn, obviously, they publish it quite a bit. And then huh. uh, Dan Sanchez, actually, who um, is was the original person I connected with over there has a whole little series on like, the 10 steps that they are using to grow their LinkedIn presence. Awesome. Um, and then I want to say they put together a guide um or a free course or something like that so um yeah they've got got tons of stuff and then uh they i guess he's their founder or president um james carberry is is posting a lot of stuff um yes. chris walker from refined labs is doing the same thing he talks a ton about uh the linkedin strategy that they're using and how it's yeah. working for them and this stuff is and great things so
1: yeah I'm, I'm following chris quite a bit uh, but yeah. we'll definitely have to find that article from uh sweet fish to link to in the show notes
0: yeah yeah i'll go hunt it down for you
1: awesome appreciate that Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, was exploring you in all your writing or many of the writings, I guess, before doing this show, one of the things you you wrote about that it was always a debate that we have internally with our clients at the agency here, um, gating content or ungating content, you know, it's the the big debate in the the content marketing world. Um, it sounds like you've got some thoughts. Do you mind, do you mind sharing a little bit? Oh, I have all the thoughts.
0: Uh, so (laughs) I uh, in general, am not a fan of gating content. I would say ungate as much content as you possibly can.
1: But then what are these leads?
0: Yeah, but they're not leads. They're <laughs> not like, <laughs> like.
1: I just wanted <laughs> to set you up there a little bit.
0: I know, I know. I anybody that fills out a form is not a lead. Um, I think my favorite example of this is you know a few years ago when I was uh, interviewing for a new job and that company was using in- inbound methodology, you know, traditional gating and. Mm-hmm. Literally everything was freaking gated. Like I couldn't find anything about the company. So I just went in one night and downloaded like every single white paper. And then the other kicker, they weren't even using progressive profiling. So I was having to fill out this form manually, like 10 times. So I basically filled out the form 10 times manually in like two hours to download all of their content to prepare wow. for the interview. And just, just even coming into the interview, they were like, you're looking to buy. And I was like, no, I'm (laughs) clearly here to interview with you people. Like, and I think that's, that's one of the clearest indications that just because somebody fills out a form, they are not a lead. They could be a prospect. They could be a competitor. They could be a job candidate. They could be a partner. Like there's so many things this person could be. And so this idea that we've magically hit this score. I think the other thing is, oh, we're going to measure you on MQLs. Well then, what needs to happen for someone to be an MQL? Oh, they have to score hundred points. Cool. I can go into Marketo or HubSpot and mark everything as a hundred points. Great, here are 10,000 leads for you because somebody filled out form. They're not qualified. Um, so I would say that make your CTAs explicit, ungate everything, say, mm-hmm. go over here to learn, go over here to buy. And then the buttons say, contact sales, book a demo, start a free trial, open an account. All of those things are by intent CTAs that will take you to by intent actions. That's where you put the gate. That's Mm -hmm. where you say, who are you? What are you doing? When are you ready to buy? And don't waste your time on all the people who just want to read a blog post and figure out what the heck you people do, right? Maybe they landed on your site because of a typo. And then, you know, especially with in tech, right? All of these fancy names of whatever things, uh, where it's missing a letter. And so somebody who was you know looking for a sprinkler system ends up on a sprinkler <laughs> social media page, but no, then they're no, like, no, no. actually, I am a marketer, so I'll click around, right? Huh. Um, that You're not tricking anyone to, into buying and you're not actually losing qualified leads. Like sales only wants to talk to people who are going to buy, great. Mm-hmm. Only send them people who are going to buy because they literally pushed a button that said, I'm going to buy. Um, that's a much, much more likely to have a closed one in Salesforce if you only speak to the people who are actually looking to make a purchase.
1: Right. But I I guess what I'd be curious is, you know, obviously someone who filled out to download your ebook or your white paper is not a a lead who's certainly not an SQL who's ready to talk to a salesperson. But the idea of thinking you can capture their emails, that you can continue to nurture them, educate them, bring them into your ecosystem, because I mean, I'm always torn, you know, my agency, we're, we're doing paid ads, we're trying to capture leads for people. And I don't mean leads per se, when we're talking about an ebook. But, you know, we'll say MQLs, presumably, if someone's clicked on, on an ad or come through with some organic search or, or, or method, and they've found a landing page, they've seen a piece of content that's gated, that looks interesting to them. And they've it looks interesting enough that they're willing to put in their email. Well, then that person is at least what you would say, a marketing qualified lead. They're interested in what you what's going on. They might not be ready to buy. They might not ever be interested in buying, but you would want to keep them in your ecosystem. You would want to make sure that, especially if you've paid to get them to visit your website, that you have the opportunity to communicate with them a second time. Obviously, you know, we could hope their content is so great that they'll naturally just want to come back all the time. I think that might be a little bit optimistic. Um, but I, I mean, I definitely understand the idea, like let them have what they want as easily as possible and hopefully they want more, but... What, what about that flip side of just saying, but now we can, we can market to them more.
0: I, yeah, again, I think my controversial opinion is I never want to sell anything to anyone. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't actually want to market anything to anyone because uh-huh. that implies that somehow I am chasing them down and tackling them and like kind of kind of beating them up until they buy something. And mm-hmm. if we go back to that playground mentality, nobody feels, I mean, again, when you watch the, the kid that really doesn't want to be there and they're like crying while their parent is like pushing them on the swing and you're like, that poor child, just let them off the swings. Uh, Don't be that marketer versus the kid that's super delighted to be there and they're climbing all over the slide and they're in the sandbox. Like, I would much rather invite you to be in the, like, come play with me. Let's build a sand castle together versus uh, me running around and tackling you. And I think that there are a lot of ways for people to give their email address and continue that relationship. So for example, uh, newsletters, that's great. We use them. Come, join us. Let's have a conversation in this newsletter. Um, I think that I struggle a bit with the nurturing thing because from my perspective, if somebody is is in a buying headspace, then they will do the research in a way that is towards buying. If they're not in a buying headspace, then they're going to unsubscribe. There's not much to really... Again, it, it it's just a struggle, I think, to nurture them because from a if if you're helping them frame the problem, that's a very learn intent piece of content. If you're helping them frame solutions, then they're probably already straddling that buy headspace, and so you don't need to convince them almost um, that they need to buy. Like they're kind of already there, and then if they're actively you know looking at demos or or doing RFPs or doing something like that. They're, they've already moved into, yes, let me speak to a sales rep. And so you should just make the button instead of like, learn more. Oh, here's a download. It's like, speak to a sales rep. Great. I'm ready to buy. Right. So I, I totally understand that sense of like, yes, but if you paid to get them, you want to communicate with them again. But I would definitely want to understand what is in that communication and how often does that, how is that communication converting versus a scenario where you've done more of that, uh, building a relationship. And especially if you have the opportunity to direct them into start a free trial or create a free account. And then that's where, if you're going to, you know, kind of start saying like, we want to communicate with you a second time. Awesome. Like put them into that. Um, I think Canva actually does a really good job of this, where if you Google like, uh, brochure design and they end up at the top search result and you can click in And there's an article that talks about, you know, good brochure design. But if you hit Uh the design, it'll drop you right into product and you can design and test and all those things. Uh And you don't have to input your information until you're ready to save that design. Uh And you can either sign in or create a free account. Right. So that, I think, is much more of a a good experience where you've built that relationship. You've communicated to them now at three different touch points Uh uh, before you ask them to basically say like, Hey, give me your number. I I want to start texting you and calling you all the time.
1: Right. It's a great example. Um, Along the lines. Okay. So now we've established, you know, we we don't want to be capturing this, this quantifiable goal of of MQLs or leads. We're not going to call them leads of of emails captured at at the beginning of your funnel. Um, My question is about, you know, attribution and, and being able to, I guess, qualify or quantify the value of content marketing. Now, obviously I believe very strongly in, in content marketing. It's how I've grown my business. It's how many businesses have grown. And yet it's very hard to quantify, especially if you're not capturing, you know, a, a lead or an email address or you know anything along those lines. So how do how do you communicate or, or maybe convince, you know, kind of more, more senior management within a company that, hey, this is providing value even though we can't measure it, or maybe you can measure it.
0: I think that you can measure it. And I think that the conversion rates, this is where I will say, I think that the funnel is a useful retrospective measurement tool. I think it's a poor forward looking strategy tool. So I would say playground is where you kind of set your strategy. Mm -hmm. um, And then funnel is where you look back to see kind of is the strategy working, right? So yes, there is an element where you're going to get a certain number of people in a certain number of those people will start a free account or do an eval or do a free trial or contact sales. Mm-hmm. And then a certain number of those, those people will actually make a purchase. Yes, that is a funnel. It is the 10-3-1 or the 10-1-1. I don't actually, I don't remember which, what it is these days. I, I wanna say uh, it's, it's kind of been the 10-3-1 was like the ratio of okay. that. Um, but yes, that is a thing. How many, how many people came to the website how many of them then clicked some sort of buying CTA and then how many of them actually made a purchase? Uh-huh. I think it is quantifiable. And obviously the more people you bring in, the more people will, you know, if you bring in hundred, then now this becomes 30 and now this becomes 10 um, if you run it through that 10, three, one funnel. So I think you can quantify it. I think the other thing that you can quantify is um, looking at, obviously marketing is generally in, in service of uh, helping to sell products and services, right? We want to grow revenue profitably. That's kind of our mandate. Right. But particularly as we look at the job market, talent is a shortage, and so the thing you might be selling is jobs because you're going to struggle to keep up demand for your product and service if you don't have people to build the product and service. And so there's brand, you know, there's there's employer branding, there's partnerships, referral programs. Like there's a number of ways to grow sales profitably. Mm-hmm without just saying, well, how many kind of MQLs did we get to based on these ebooks? And so I think that there's there's a lot of ways that you can measure it. You can you can still run it through to say which pieces of content end up with the most people clicking that that start a free trial CTA. Yeah. Okay. Off of that, what is the onboarding experience? Maybe we're going to show them and again I'm I'm obviously highly biased towards SAS um, these days. That's what I've been working in over the last Uh, six or so years, but uh, you know, what is that experience? Let's AB test and whichever experience leads to more people actually converting to a paid account or upgrading to the premium account. Mm -hmm. Do more of that content, right? Like you can measure it. I think that the hard part is that that initial mindset shift to say, okay, if we ungate all of our content, we don't have any MQLs now, but that's not true. You didn't, necessarily have MQLs before, you've just had people who filled out a form. And so if you go directly to how many people actually clicked a buying CTA, um, you can can measure directly from kind of that uh, traditional very top of funnel all the way down to bottom of of funnel. Um, Because just because somebody goes from, let's say, a thought leadership article to a product tour, in theory, they've moved phases of the funnel, but they may or may not be any closer to actually making a purchase. And you don't know that until they hit a buying CTA.
1: And, and are you able to attribute in terms of different pieces of content? You know, again, thinking of it as a playground, you know, someone came, they went down the slide, they sat, they sat on the swings for five minutes, ran across the jungle gym in the seesaw. And then they decided to click that CTA to book a demo. Could have been the slide was what, you know, really convinced them, hey, this is really cool. And they wanted to go digger, deeper into the playground and play some more. How do, how do you figure out which content's really working? You just have to kind of look at it collectively
0: so there's a bunch of different attribution models um you can use last touch attribution i am not a huge fan of last touch attribution because that seems yeah. to i mean in theory right, right? like if you click start an account or whatever uh open a free account then that was the conversion it's like well no but clearly that was the last thing that they hit because that's the buying cta um so you know and and especially if you look at something like a pricing page right like obviously people go look at the features or whatever, but then they're like, how much does this cost? And so in theory, your pricing page is going to be one of your highest converting pages, sure. which makes perfect sense, but that's not the thing that they didn't convert because right. of the pricing page. Right. Um, so first touch attribution, last touch attribution. But again, that first touch attribution, it's like, oh, they saw us in a paid ad. That's the thing that converted them. Okay, no, it's not. So I, I tend to... Um, And a lot of the marketing automation platforms have a multi-touch attribution um, system set up to where you can see kind of which pages people went to. Um, If you get really sophisticated, you can start to look at, you know, wow, all the people who eventually upgraded to a premium account Mm -hmm. um, or a paid account from the free account, they all consumed these two or three pieces of content. So, huh that story or use case or whatever seems to resonate with folks. So I think it's a little, it's part art, part science. I think the other big thing is if you can get on the phone and talk to customers and ask them, what is your decision process? How did you hear about us? Um, What can I send you that would be more helpful, especially if you're doing more of an enterprise sale where it's a huge PO and they actually have a sales rep or a customer success team that's helping them implement something, asking them like, what convinced you? Um, And in some cases you'll hear Oh, I I just see you guys everywhere. Okay, good to know. There's a a mix of brand, kind of sales, product, press, et cetera, that's contributing to this. Or in my case, which I'm highly biased because I own this site, hearing people say, Yeah, I I went to the Agile microsite, or like, Oh my gosh, the Agile microsite is amazing. Great. That's a very high converter. We can see that both from organic entrances to the people that hit the CTAs on the sidebar, we can follow them all the way down and see that it's converting. But then anecdotally, we can also hear and see people share it on social. When we get on the phone with them, they're like, I love the agile microsite, right? So we're able to pair that more data-driven mindset with the human anecdotes to realize, hey, this particular body of work is behaving as it should for the audience benefit and for the business benefit.
1: Nice. Um, out of curiosity, what, what analytics tool are you using for kind of measuring, you know, what were the touch points that people used or, or touched? Or which piece of content might they have touched before they converted how you guys we, that? Yeah,
0: so we we have a couple of different. Um, again, this is the the blessing and a curse of a larger organization. We have a marketing yeah. analytics team that handles that. So I get a lovely dashboard that That's I can true. can go That's through and fair. just like check my little filters. Uh, um, how all of that data gets piped in? I know it's coming from a variety of different sources. Yeah. So I am not actually hundred percent sure. Like. Oh, yes, we've used Marketo. We turned on, you know, multi-touch and we have the, you know, flow it all in. Uh, I'm not actually sure kind of the power underneath Mm -hmm. that. I know some of the components include things like organic um, content. It includes, again, obviously we've got a variety of different CTAs and conversion rates in terms of a try it free button. um, And then obviously once someone upgrades to paid. So we do look at things like um, day zero activation rates. We look at things like two week activation rates, you know, cool, somebody signed up did they actually stay? Um, And then we also look at things like, you know, lifetime value, we look at churn rates. Um, So a lot of those post-purchase or down funnel metrics and then understanding kind of the connection between those and the more top of funnel, traditionally considered top of funnel content of, this is our highest performing page and we can start to see the conversion rates as we go down.
1: Got it, Um, awesome. I've just learned a lot. I think everybody else will also. Um, let's jump into our lightning round before we wrap it up. Sure. A um, couple of quick questions, quick answers. First thing that comes to your mind and uh, we'll go from there. So first question, um, what book could you recommend to our, our listeners? It could be a business book, a fiction book. What have you read recently that you love? I'm, act- I'm going to cheat. I'm going to go to
0: Business okay. book is The Medici Effect. Uh, it's by Franz Johansson and it's basically about creative problem solving and it's a phenomenal book. Quick read. Highly recommend it. Fiction Great. book, uh, the Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Fascinating book. I think it's called The Seven Deaths of a- Evelyn Hardcastle in some uh, some of the Amazon search results, but it's by Stuart Turton. And the writing is just phenomenal. The story is fascinating. Um, great read.
1: Fantastic. Um, your favorite marketing productivity tool that you're using these days?
0: Oh, man. That's a hard one. I, again, highly biased uh, because I, I, but I love it. Um, Trello, I think has been great for us. Obviously we do use Jira and Confluence, but I think that Trello is quite accessible for users, both from a personal standpoint and all the way up to yeah, um, larger teams. So I'm gonna have to, have to throw in the plug for Trello.
1: Okay, fair enough. I, I had a feeling it was gonna be, you guys have so many tools, it had to be one of them, right? Um, who's your favorite marketer that you're learning from these days or business leader?
0: Ooh. That is a hard one as well. Um, I mean, if I'm, you know, Anne Handling obviously is like killing it all the time. Uh, marketing profs, just her her personal perspective on things and then the perspective that she brings to marketing profs is great. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I'll go ahead and throw out another plug for the folks at Sweetfish Media. Like they're, they're killing it. And um, again, go check out the content, go connect with all of their folks on LinkedIn. Um, they're touching a variety of different parts of marketing and and a bunch of different disciplines. And so I think that's why it's been super fun to kind of see how they've knit together this strategy um, across a bunch of different skill sets.
1: All right. And last question is where can listeners go to learn more about you? Sure.
0: So uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Ashley Foss. Okay.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Ashley, this has been great. I've learned a ton. I know everybody else listening I'm sure has also. And thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: The SaaS Marketing Superstars Podcast is brought to you by XAML Digital Marketing. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks again for tuning in and keep on growing your SaaS.